Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Alexis Pereira program. I'm your host, Alexis Pereira. With me, as always, is my co-host, my senor, my compañero, Alex Estrada. You got to stop talking to me in a language I don't understand. (laughs) English? (laughs) Asshole. How you doing, Alex? Good, man. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, You know, still shopping for housing. Uh, upstate, looking up uh, cheap housing upstate in case I want to buy one. That's right. You sent me a list of uh, some of your prospects. Um, I didn't know that Zillow had a fuckpad option. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. First of all, it's not a fuckpad. It's officially. But I do, I have, after our trip, I have been interested in buying a house upstate. Some of them are very cheap. Yeah. Very affordable. Now, my wife okay. got on a, a similar uh, kick, I guess, this past week. So she's also been looking at places upstate. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing that drives me nuts is I am trying to give these people my money when I'm trying to book a space. I literally, I'm like, I will give you money. You want more money? I'll give you that money. And they're like, no, I booked up. Or as one woman wrote to me once, no, I changed my mind. I'm not booking it out. I don't want your money. And... I'm I'm willing to give these people so much money. Why don't I get a house? Why don't I go there whenever I want? And when I'm not using it, I will Airbnb it out at an affordable rate. Socialism. <laughs> to anybody who's interested. I, I, it, t- it seems to be like a no-brainer, especially for a cheap house that's, uh, you know, basically in the Shawangunks. Right. But I don't know. They say that if you, you know, you pay cheap, you get what you pay for, right? Well, I'll I'll redo it. I'll send some Latin Latin family members up there. I'll just throw a bunch at at that house. Right. Rebuild it. Getting a, an orgy grade floor. Excellent. <laughs> well, let's say, you, don't, you don't put carpet down. It's the number one trick. If you're going to get an orgy, don't take out the carpet. Well, speaking of orgy, we've got a wonderful guests with us today. Uh, he is the senior writer, or one of the senior writers, uh, from The Intelligencer at uh, New York Magazine. Uh, he is he's often on TV. Uh, I've seen him uh, replace Combs on Hannity and Combs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he is with us right now. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Eric Levitz. Hey, thanks for having me on, on this uh, amazing and, and famous and, and well-rated program. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> we have over two ratings uh, on iTunes right now, and uh, wow. under under four, over two, so it's pretty good. How's your quarantine going, Eric? Uh, yeah, it's been going pretty all right. I um, I let's see what I, I spent a decent amount of time. Um, I actually went home to visit my my parents the first uh, oh. weekend in March, and um, a spreader. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I it was a pre planned trip, a family thing, um, but. Uh, I got kind of lazy that Sunday and ended up not going back to the city. And then five days work week later, uh, seemed like it was maybe ill-advised to, to go back to the city. So I, I just got back to New York the last couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Oh, you've, wow, you've been away for yeah. months. Wow. I have. Where, 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 may I ask, does your family, what state do they reside in? Yeah, Connecticut. So they... Um, oh, that's, that's close enough. Yeah, they, they it was sort of adding another layer of surreality to my quarantine experience was um they, they no longer live in my childhood home they moved a, a couple towns over um to this like sort of eerily um uniform and well manicured condo complex that is on top of this hill where there used to be a drive-in movie theater when i was a kid <laughs> um and so it kind of added to the sense of being stuck in like a kind of weird 
oddly gentle nightmare that, you know, this sort of area from my childhood had been yeah. uh, transposed. Sounds like um, you have your uh, festival film entry. Uh, <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Um, we're still waiting to hear, but... Uh, so, Eric, uh, this podcast, I've been told, if it takes off, they will. my podcast network at Authentic will eventually work to produce it into a talk show. So we are working on making it into a talk show, adding elements. And one of the elements from a talk show we'd like to do, in case this show is one day a real time with Bill Maher and Alan, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, up late with By- Byron. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> Byron? What's his name? I, some, Byron, I don't know. Lord Byron, I don't know. There's Lord, this guy. Lord he, Byron, yeah. He, there's a, 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 he, he's, like, he's also a billionaire. He does a show where he hosts four comics and they just tell, do a stand-up. Do their stand-up at him? Uh, yeah, whatever. I know. Uh, I'm thinking you're the next Robin Bird. Yeah. I think his name's <laughs> Byron Allen, by the way. But anyway. Um, so, I, so I'm going to do a monologue. Uh, is that okay with you, Eric? You, please um, don't interrupt too much, but I'm just going to do a, a monologue. You have no say in it, so I'm just going to go ahead. Yeah, it seems like I'm powerless it. to stop yeah. this. <clears throat> okay, here's the monologue. <clears throat> I was washing the dishes the other day when I smelled something terrible. Aaron, are you baking something? I called to my girlfriend, but she replied that she was not. After looking around a bit, I decided to look under the sink, worried that a mouse had died, or worse, was alive. Behind the cleaning products, I found a small puddle of water. Not only that, but the sink cabinet was completely destroyed, with the particle board warped all to all hell. I ran the water, and yes, it was leaking out of the trap, which is the curvy pipe under the sink. I know this because the trap is what I also call curvy women. This reminded me of a family trip I took when I was young. When my family took road trips, they'd pack many of the clothes into garbage bags. We each got a suitcase, and whatever didn't fit, garbage bag. I want to say it's because my parents are immigrants, but this was so strange, the only explanation is that they immigrated from Mars. One day, as we began our road trip, we realized something smelled really bad. What is that? We asked each other. My dad opined that we drove by a skunk. An hour later, it still smelled. Is the skunk chasing us? I wondered. Finally, my mom decided to look through the bags. In one bag, she found coats. In another, pots and pans. In another, blankets. And finally, in one garbage bag, she found garbage. (laughs) That's right. My mom had decided to take out the garbage before we left, and she rested the bag against the door. My dad had absentmindedly put that bag in the car. We promptly pulled over at a Burger King and threw the bag in the dumpster, even though I told my parents this was highly illegal, and as the sign said, we'd be fined (laughs) $25,000. Now I open it up to the panel. Did you guys take many road trips when you were young? (laughs) Wait, that was the monologue? monologue? Yes! Oh my god. Uh, That's a monologue. A monologue could be anything. Yeah, deaf poetry electric. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that poetry is a monologue I Eric guess. we'll start with you because Alex is being a total jerk did you take a road trips when you were a kid yeah yeah I took uh, several road trips um, up to Niagara Falls uh, down to oh. Colonial Williamsburg oh. um, yeah those are the two that stick out and I guess we flew out west um, and then did a road trip uh, down uh, to the, the meteor crater in Arizona um, was it a recent crater, or was it the... Uh, 
No, it, it was um, I, I, it was like a middle-aged crater. Still, you know, still had it, but uh, it still. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. And then there was a, a road trip that we tried to take to um, to the Grand Canyon. Uh, but my dad, uh, we wanted to fly into Las Vegas because flights into Las Vegas are uh, yeah. pretty cheap because they want to get you there to gamble. Um, but my dad, um, instead of booking like for the Wednesday of the following week, he whatever he, he booked basically our return flight for like four days after we got there instead of like much longer. Um, and so we ended up with a uh, unplanned Vegas vacation um which my mother's like um you know a, an immigrant from like you know soviet catholic poland she's very socially sort of conservative uh she was horrified by everything that she oh saw in, in vegas and was those men have a tiger yeah she was particularly well she yeah she's also an animal rights ad, 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 oh so, my gosh um no but yeah uh i saw penn and teller uh but um but my my, my parents marriage had a, a tough few days oh Alex, you you were a big road trip guy. We were, enough. we were. That was the only way to get around uh, when you're poor. Oh <laughs> my gosh! Yeah, uh, yeah. The I think the most memorable road trip was the one we took to Oregon to see my uncle. Uh, and from Northern California, the Oregon border is about a six-hour uh, drive as the uh, well as the the van drives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in our case, it took about twenty-four. Uh, because it, uh, the van just kept like breaking down. There are all kinds of problems with it. And I remember the trip, the, the, I guess the highlight, low light, whatever, the thing that stuck with me is my, my dad, uh, had to suck gas from our gas tank <laughs> to, to put it into a can to drop it directly into the, uh, into the carburetor of the engine. This is the way they drive in like post apocalyptic <laughs> movies. <laughs> like, <we've> got- <laughs> No, it, it was that he actually swallowed gas on that trip and uh, suffered medically because of it for uh, the rest of his life. Uh, but it's crazy because we also, we kept that, I drove that van in college uh, <laughs> and it never oh. got better. Uh, so horrible. So yeah, uh, road trip. Don't recommend them. Ugh. Um, so we got Eric here. Eric wrote a great uh, article for the Intelligencer uh, entitled, Trump's racism won't win the suburbs, but it may diversify them. Now, I just want to uh, read the tweet that Trump uh, said recently. And it was kind of random, uh, but obviously it's an attempt to shore up his base and get ready for the election uh, with the uh, kind of swing voters or really the voters that he feels will come out for him more if, if you know he does this or whatever. And uh, he said, he tweeted recently, uh, I'm happy to inform all the people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. Uh, Eric, uh, tell us about what Trump did or didn't do. Sure. Uh, yeah, so basically my my analysis on, on this is, uh, you know, Trump is actually identifying uh, a kind of a soft spot in the growing liberalism of college-educated, generally white, uh, affluent suburban voters who have been trending away from the GOP uh, gradually for you know a couple decades now in response to its increasing um, the increasing dominance of like the evangelical right uh, over the the party. Um, there's you know a pretty strong cultural clash between a large chunk of the 
highly educated professional class and the you know socially conservative wing of the Republican Party, but that this realignment really turbocharged under Trump, uh, who really kind of you know put the ugliest sort of possible face on Republican politics for this for a significant portion of this constituency. Um, but you know, so so these voters that have been trending towards the Democrats. Um, in, in a lot of different policy issue polls that you can look at, they are, they have become, you know, fairly liberal on, on a lot of uh, issues. So there was actually a vote in um, Missouri this week for Medicaid expansion. And you see in the pattern of the, the vote returns, it just uh, barely passed. But the, the more uh, affluent parts of the state, the, uh, you know, highly educated uh, suburban parts actually voted to expand uh, public health insurance to the poor whereas the, the poorer uh, rural areas uh, voted against it. Um, so you see this uh, element of, you know, kind of, these people sort of believe that they, they have a general sense of we want to uh, be inclusive, we want to put a Black Lives Matter sign on our lawn, um, you know, we're okay with maybe a slight uh, tax increase here or there to make sure that, the, you know, the poor aren't dying. Um, but uh, when it comes to, you know, actually uh, letting the poor into their neighborhoods, then this sort of gets to be a, a dicier proposition. You see that all the time, even in New York City. Well, obviously, in New York City, but you see it even with uh, a homeless shelter. On so people don't want it on their block. You know, it basically, you're talking about nimbyism. Nimbyism can mean a lot of things, but uh, you know, I even see people say like who live in the Lower East Side being like, "Oh, they're building another affordable housing building. They're changing the character of the neighborhood." And it's like, "What? <laughs> in Lower East Side?" Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I know what it's become. Famous for tenements, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so running you know, water? Uh, yeah. Not in my see- Lower East Side. <laughs> <laughs> no, you see it everywhere. But w- would you say? And I, I think this is what you're kind of getting at. That this attitude of we don't want these people here, is there some self-reflection going on? Is is there like an attitude of, you know what, maybe we do need to diversify the neighborhoods more? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, the, the argument in my article is basically that, um, you know, Trump is identifying a real thing. The, the sort of quippy way that I put it is, you know, that, that Trump has a intuitive grasp for white suburbia's id but he has no feel for its superego hmm. so like he understands like that uh you know that uh, there's a certain type of uh, white liberal minded uh affluent voter who you know really there is a conflict between uh, the progressive agenda and their desire to uh maintain the value of their house uh at least um to the extent that you know you know, and it's unclear. There are some situations actually in which NIMBYism, NIMBYs are actually sacrificing um, the potential increase in their their house's value by increasing the value of the land around the house by increasing density. Um, uh, but there are other cases in which, you know, in a, a society that is racist and classist, that actually allowing uh, low-income housing in close proximity um, to your McMansion can potentially uh, reduce your net worth. But uh, so there's that. But then there's also, you know, just the basic idea that, you know, it, if you have all upper middle class people um, forming their own little municipality and they can pool their tax dollars and uh, kind of get more bang for their, their buck if there are no poor people around whose children also need to be educated and need a share of the resources. And maybe they need a little bit more teacher attention, perhaps, because they get less support from home. Um, and so these areas where it's like really about, you know, really internalizing that we live in a society um, hmm. that, that sometimes... Uh, 
but they, they don't want to think of it uh, like that in those terms. They don't want to think that, uh, you know, the reason why I'm opposed to new development um, in my neighborhood or, or a redrawing of the school district such that uh, the demographic composition is going to change um, is because I, you know, uh, don't actually care that much about, uh, you know, uh, what it will actually take to to redress segregation or um, that I don't actually care about lifting up low-income kids. Um, and they have a, a whole litany of different uh, sort of psychological mechanisms for um, or ideological mechanisms for, for denying this. Uh, and you see it especially with, there are a lot of people, I was talking about sort of voters who have drifted into the Democratic Party earlier, but there are also just like staunch lifelong liberals who really uh, subscribe to NIMBYism and, and, and think of it because, you know, in a lot of situations this involves the construction of new housing. Um, and so they can code this as, oh, it's, it's greedy real estate developers that I'm standing up to by blocking this construction. And the housing is going on top of like, you know, where grass currently is. So, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm standing up for the environment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's also connected to, it sort of claims the mantle of um, the fight back against uh, urban renewal, um, you know, in, in, in New York City, which did involve, uh, you know, uh, bulldozing a lot of low-income African-American neighborhoods to make way for, for highways. And so there was this kind of idea of, you know, opposing development is a egalitarian thing, but they kind of transpose the moral, uh, you know, righteousness of that cause onto, uh, you know, whatever, preserving, like you said, the, the character of the Lower East Side or... That's, um, it's yeah. it's very funny, actually, because I, I think I told you this story, Alexis, because this reminds me sort of of the story of my building. Uh, so I moved in here in January, and in the course of uh, moving from uh, Bay Ridge to Prospect Heights, uh, I was just very curious about, like, oh, you know, the history of the neighborhood. And so I looked up my address... And it turned out that um, the apartment um, I'm in a, a uh, in an affordable housing project. I guess you would uh, you would say you know we qualify for the uh, the tax abatement that you get for making affordable housing. And it turns out that about ten years ago, this was actually a historical uh, carriage house uh, that had fallen into disrepair, uh, and there was litigation pending about uh, whether or not it could be developed or not. And so what had happened was uh, overnight uh, and over the course of a week, basically, uh, the uh, the contractor illegally demolished uh, the old carriage house and then built, um, you know, the building that I now reside in. Yeah. So this, this was, uh, you know, back in the uh, the early aughts. Uh, but I remember, and I, you know, the the comment thread where has been locked for years, but I went through and like read it and there was a back and forth between folks who were upset about uh, the changes to the neighborhood and the loss of the history and crying for the old carriage house that, you know, hasn't had a carriage in it <laughs> yeah. since uh, the 1920s, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting and people get very worked up. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a uh, an affordable housing um, project. Okay, let let let's be real here though. New York City, old stuff in New York City is pretty cool. Okay, mm -hmm. even a carriage house in the neighborhood—that's pretty damn cool. You know, like you look at it, you're like, "Whoa, check that out!" You know, like you're walking a girl home from the subway. You're like, "And that's a that's a carriage house in the twenties, by the way." And there you go. Oh, there's uh, a guy shooting meth in it. Great, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> okay, yeah. His name's Alexis. Um, but the thing about the suburbs is, I think the suburbs is like losing people I, I maybe i'm wrong but i feel like a lot of the generation of like you know people who are in the 50s or 60s maybe they're seeing their kids and their grandkids bolt 
back to the cities. I, I really believe that part of the reason why they might even want affordable housing or, and we should get into the Fair Housing Act in a little bit, but like one of the reasons why they might want more diversity in their little townships is they want like something cool to come to their towns. <laughs> a P.F. You know? Chang's. Well, not even that, like just I, I like, oh, you know, this there's enough people here for an improv school. Oh, God. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now they don't have that's to go. strong argument that's against that's developers. <laughs> yeah, that's like the, what is it? The, um, yeah, the first cycle in the death spiral of a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, but, the creation of a improv theater. But a, a, again, I just, I just feel like they're, you know, whenever I go to like visit, like, you know, I don't know, people in the outer, like, towns or whatever there's like a conversation constantly happening of like my kids don't want to move next door they want to move to st paul you know or something like that or they want to move to like the city like how like i don't know i feel like in some weird way like these older liberals are kind of thinking about how to make like their suburbia cooler maybe i'm crazy great again (laughs) yeah i don't know maybe i'm not but, but again i just feel like there is this just fear of what's going to happen to this town in 20 years when yeah. everything's expensive and nobody can live here? Yeah, I mean, like, there's also a, a sort of problem that, that my article is complicit in is that, you know, the, the definition of suburb is uh, so vast. Uh, and so it, and, and there's obviously very different things. So, like, a an inner ring suburb that really is a direct feeder to a, a major city is a very different thing from, like, a... Yes. An outer suburb, and uh, you know, in, in, in dry technical terms, it's just like a density uh, thing. Uh, whereas, you know, you've got the cultural understanding of the suburb, which is a very a picture of very certain kind of uh, socioeconomic class. When obviously, we've had uh, you know, Ferguson, Missouri, is a suburb, um, but it's not the the quintessential suburb in the American imagination. So there's a lot lot going on. Uh, there generally, I do think that there are a decent number of, of inner-rich suburbs that are actually pretty hot commodities, um, real because estate wise. Yeah, because they're close, right? And but but there are really important fights happening in those places where uh, the incumbent homeowners want to have their cake and eat it too. That that right now they have the benefit of you know low density, lots of space, um, but they're also close to the city and they want to kind of hoard uh, you know that that benefit instead of allowing uh, you know. High, high-rise construction that would, uh, you know, make housing in the general metropolitan area more affordable um, and, and improve economic growth uh, and also make, you know, things more climate-friendly because if people could take mass transit into the city. So there's, like, this big social benefit, um, but the, in this small minority that, that has a investment in the status quo, but, uh, you know, these decisions are made at the local level and the small minority is, is much better informed and better organized um, than, you know, the, the future renters that would live there if they built the building. Now, um, things change, though. Things always change about how where people want to live. I read that in the, and maybe this is bullshit, but like in the 50s, it was cool to live far from where you worked and drive for like an hour. And so people who worked in New York City, like living near your job was like that, like you can get that for a nickel. You know, a great apartments or whatever, but like everybody wants to live in, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut or Long Island and drive in or take the train for a while. 
Uh, now it seems it's gone the other way with the decline of mass transit uh, or, or, you know, whatever, the, inf- the decline of our infrastructure. People are like, oh, I kind of want to live kind of closer, but not too close, you know? So now, obviously, the uh, the rents are skyrocketing in New York City. But now something else has happened. Now we got corona. And now people are like, oh, we can kind of work from home and I can ha- kind of have space again. That might be a fight that we might not have to fight. It looks like, I don't know, people might be leaving the city. People, again, might be going to that great migration up north. <laughs> yeah, there's been a little bit of that already. I mean, in, in New York did uh, lose population last year before this even started. Oh. Uh, not a, a ton, but but it did go down. I think uh, Cuomo um, was sounding the alarm on that, right? He said, we're uh, we're chasing our precious millionaires and billionaires away. Yeah, <laughs> but that's not the population. Our that we greatest lost. Uh, non-renewable yeah. resource. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is like it's a tricky thing because it's like with fiscal federalism, like that is like a problem. Like uh, you know, I know in in my home state of Connecticut, like you got to a point where um, you know domestic industry kind of has been you know investments been moving away from Connecticut for a, a long time. Um, and a lot of people, like you were just saying, uh, who used to live in Greenwich had moved to the city. Um, and you got to a point where there are like these, these like six hedge fund billionaires that live in Western Connecticut. And like, if we're going to have an education budget, we need to make sure they don't move. And so you have like, the governor like <laughs> going to their houses and like, just please, you know, um, I'll it break is, like, his son's legs, his <laughs> 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 tires. I'll keep him here <laughs> it is, like, for the summer. A real thing that um, that you do end up in a situation where if you have this concentration of wealth and you have, uh, you know, we should fund all of our fucking social benefits nationally so that they can't so easily escape. But, um, you know, it's not entirely, uh, I think in New York State as a whole, maybe it, it works, but whatever. It is it is a danger that that the millionaires can leave and then you can't fund stuff. Oh, it's crazy, and they play whack a mole also, where yeah. they go, oh, if you move here for your first year, you'll have free taxes, and then they'll move there, and then they right. then they keep moving to new and new deals the way I do with I don't know uh, cell phone companies. But uh, <laughs> what's the one? What's the one that likes states? Is that federalism or anti federalism? That's uh, yeah. Anti-fe- it, well, yes, that would be anti federalism. Oh, okay, yeah, I'm. It's I'm, really confusing I'm, because the the, the, the word like. It was actually um, federalism is normally understood as is a word for you know devolving powers so that it's sort of associated with state powers. But uh, when they were trying to get the constitution confirmed, the people who the the side that favored a stronger national government and less federalism decided to brand themselves as the federalists to kind of get people uh, on board, and so it, it's resulted in kind of. A I'm not misinformed. The uh, founding <laughs> fathers were. Yeah. When they named it. So now let's go over the, the Fair Housing Act. Uh, okay, this is me, social studies teacher, uh, giving the best seventh and eighth grade explanation I can. <laughs> but basically, the government said, you know, you can't you can't preclude people buying a house based on gender or race or you know uh, sexuality. I, I, I believe, um, and then uh, they also decided to maybe spread around some cash. If so, that if you were diversifying, and again, one of the biggest issues with diversity in almost every industry uh, is cash. So they, the federal government said, okay, we will subsidize housing to try to make it more fair too. Am I off base? Well, as a social studies teacher, uh, this is a lesson on World War Two, Alexis, <laughs> and the importance of the French Resistance. <laughs> Mr. Pereira, what does this have to do with anything? Oh. <laughs> 
But yeah, your ballpark. Yeah, mm-hmm. basically, it was to um, the purpose was to remedy uh, historic discrimination uh, on the basis of uh, primarily on race, but also gender and sexual orientation. And so, basically, the uh, the agency was empowered to uh, promulgate regulations uh, towards uh, correcting that historical imbalance. Mm-hmm. And but. Isn't like the biggest question, though, that and maybe the critique of this and I'm not sure what Obama did to change it, by the way, maybe we'll get to that. But like, there isn't really much directive on how to do it. Right. Right. It's just kind of like, can you can you make it? It's like it's like step one. Uh, racism, step three, profit, <laughs> and there's no step two. Well, you know, that's yeah, like part of that, it, right? that's sort of the kind of the design of the administrative state. Part of it is that you uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to trust the process of coming up with like the nuts and bolts of how you're going to uh, fix a specific problem politically. And so the idea was to defer to an administrative agency to sort of come up with rules and regulations that they would then use. Uh, to accomplish uh, the administrative mission. Uh, the problem mm-hmm. gets into it when you do have uh, political interference in an administrative uh, agency, uh, which leads to the mission being compromised. Yeah. So basically, you have the federal government. They're like, we need to make this country less racist. And they ask a bunch of racists. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Come up with your best plan to make this country less racist. And they go, hey, here we go. Here we got it. <laughs> Let's try it. But, uh, I mean, that's that's the thing. The uh, the leeway with a you know an open committal or a non committal uh, like kind of open ended uh, mission is that if you succeed or don't succeed, uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and also the, the more heavy handed uh, you know attempts to combat segregation, you know, especially like in schools, were just beaten back by local resistance in the in the sixties and seventies, and then the Supreme Court eventually kind of made it more difficult to do busing and stuff. So like, yeah, I mean, it's just like it, 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 it sort of a consistent story in, in American history, I feel like is that, um, you know, for a little while, uh, sort of racially progressive forces captured the federal government, uh, for an inherently temporary period. But then, you know, there's all these other layers of authority. Um, and generally in any one battle over, uh, you know, racial equality in like, you know, a given city or, state the the organ the people organizing against it tend to have more invested than like just general liberal opinion and then, oh, then eventually yeah. the liberals lose power of the federal government the conservatives come in and then just got the the, the thing yeah. oh well liberal plans are complicated uh they have um unintended consequences uh you know all that shit is always uh you know it's be- it's easier to do nothing it's easier to know nothing as as uh, some people used to say um <laughs> and uh Alexis lives by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, you know my anti-Catholic stance. Um, right. So, so uh, yeah, it's that whole idea of like, you know, it's better to do nothing and just let it fly. But as we all know, there's no such thing as nothing. Everybody has an ideology, and uh, oftentimes we see racist ideology creep out of people who say, "I just want to do nothing," um, which I think honestly is the biggest issue with, um, you know. I think this is why Trump has emboldened the left and even not even just the left, but liberals. Whereas before it kind of seemed like, oh, maybe he's just going to kind of be like agnostic and not really do stuff. But now he is like the ideologies coming out and they're just kind of like, yeah, no, we got to get this out of here. I, I, I feel like 
Because, again, I've very famously bet in January that Biden's going to win. And I still stand by that bet, even though Trump <laughs> is catching up. <laughs> it, is, it is getting uh, narrower and narrower. And I think the yeah the coronavirus definitely uh, aided Alexis's uh, prospects. It doesn't so matter. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, like, I, you know, it would be nice to get Trump out of office. Also be nice to get five bucks. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's good to hedge your, your bets there, a balanced portfolio. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's true. Now, uh, I also wanted to get into um, I, I, white flight, you know, this kind of like the uh, elephant in the room when you talk about uh, affordable housing and who gets to live in the best places. And um, what is the what is the main culprit of, of white flight? And I think that generally people say it's racism, like people saw black people moving into a city and they decided to move out. But, you know, people have done research and found that even when like a black person moved into a city, they didn't move into a white neighborhood. You know, they were nowhere near the white people who were moving out. In fact, they were in their own neighborhoods because of cities were very heavily segregated. Uh, and it just seems that at the time, uh, white people just were given investment opportunities in these kind of suburban areas that would eventually grow in value or whatever. Uh, and they all, you know, they wanted to live in uh, uh, like wide open spaces and, you know, I don't know, greener lawns or whatever. So they all were able to go in and get that. And uh, <laughs> Alexis now, playing the Shania Twain song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they wanted to land to Rome. Yeah. All that. But but um, there's like two consequences of that. And, and I think we kind of already went over it. One is, um, you know, they have a stranglehold on these kind of outside areas outside the city. And the second one is their kids are moving back into the city. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another is that uh, another issue that we referenced earlier is like the the cities lost their tax base. You know, like I mean, yeah. When, when white flight's going on, you've got a lot of different things happening. But one is uh, you know deindustrialization, especially in in the Northeast, where you're not just having uh, companies offshoring manufacturing, but also moving it to the South and the Southwest, where there's um, less unionization and and you know more uh, racial hierarchy, and so. Workers are much more exploitable, um, and that's occurring at the same time that you have a great migration of African Americans uh, north to these cities, and a lot of African Americans are getting there right when the jobs are leaving, um, and then when you've got investment also leaving the, the city, that combined with the issue that you were talking about, you've got the, the wealthiest uh, residents of the city moving out of the suburbs and taking their tax dollars, and so you end up with, you know, this sort of leads to the urban crisis of the, the 60s and, and 70s. Mm-hmm. But now their uh, broke ass kids are moving into the city. Yeah, well, then the city's uh, got cool again. Uh, yeah. yeah, circle and, of life. It all works out. Yeah, they're coming back. <laughs> yeah, uh, they are uh, subsidizing my improv classes uh, <laughs> by moving in. Um, I, I just wonder what post corona like New York City is going to look like. You know, because people people have less money. That's one. I feel like I feel like there might be less. Uh, because I think a, a, I think a lot of people who move to the city are subsidized by their parents. Maybe not <laughs> completely, but I think that there are a lot, and maybe we won't see that as much unless like they're like super rich. Uh, I don't know. I, I just I just have all these like weird guesses. Yeah. Um, yeah. I- I think it'll still be a, you know, not to the extent that it was a playground for the super rich before, but I think it'll still be a, you know, an investment destination um, and a, um, 
you know, an expensive location uh, for, you know, that maybe like, you know, the top 1%. uh, But I think that it will, it'll likely get, likely get less diverse. um, And yeah, it'll be uh, more difficult, I think, to uh, live here um, for certain types of uh, people in the economic scale, uh, which just doesn't, doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're just in such a radically uncertain moment. Uh, it seems to me the city's in a lot of trouble. A lot depends on whether or not uh, massive federal aid eventually comes, you know, in this package or if Democrats take power. Because um, if it doesn't, uh, you know, the MTA's funding's been gutted. I mean, ridership is... The city doesn't work without the subway, and the subway uh, is not funding itself right now. And you're losing so much revenue from other things. At the same time, it does seem like if it is the case that there is a significant shift towards working remotely and away from centralized center city uh, commercial real estate, then there's a lot of buildings in the middle of the city that um, that could be, <laughs> but that could be converted to housing and could oh, then put downward pressure on yeah. on rents. Um, you could so, sleep at UCB Chelsea, Alexis. <laughs> yeah. Again. <laughs> So I don't know. There's a lot of different cross-cutting things in terms of what would happen to whether the city gets more or less affordable. Um, but but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess so. But it's people move to the city also to do stuff. So if there's no stuff, you know, like the restaurants are closed. Like I'm not saying every restaurant's going to close down or every comedy club's going to close yeah. down. But like there's going to be less of it. Yeah. yeah. I think they're estimating something like 30% of the city's businesses uh, will likely be permanently closed. Okay. Uh, without like massive, uh, massive, massive aid, uh, yeah. unprecedented aid. But that's what draws people to the city. You know, people come to the city to shop. People, people live in the city to go to shows. And, and I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I, I often feel that people at least tell themselves, I'm here because I have access to this stuff. And so yeah. if that stuff goes away, I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious about where, what people will do. I mean, I, look, in the 60s, every fucking commercial for computers was, you could work from anywhere. <laughs> now everybody, you know, does uh, because of Corona. And the only reason why we have offices is just so people can show off how big their office is to other people. Um, Which is important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> apparently. That's the only reason I'm here. Oh, I wish I had an office. I My, my office is inside and i mean i was like an open floor but it's inside another office's office like i don't know it's it's, it's impossible i have to walk through an office you'd have to show office. us a, a drawing or something yeah just yeah. it's the russian dolls i'm the in i'm the inside one um so yeah i'm curious about that because uh another thing to think about is new york city in the 80s or the 70s Pretty damn cool when a lot of things were kind of like cheap <laughs> and people <laughs> could just do like a little like like DIY spaces and, you know, cool people can move to the city and for cheap rent. Maybe that's going to happen. Yeah. That might be cool. Huh? Would you like that? <laughs> Hang out with the Ramones? <laughs> oh God. Alexis, you go to bed at 8.30. <laughs> and I wake up at 4. All right. My cat's not going to feed herself, and she's on a special diet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I've seen I've seen a lot of companies say that they're going to try to formally make work from home a thing, and uh, I mean, they, you got to be saving a ton of money. Except for Facebook, which just bought almost an entire building on they they bought the old post office building or they rented it out, the entire thing out. 
Oh, and on uh, uh, like near Penn Station. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. They they really? took up they took up almost the entire uh, thing. That's wild. Jeez. That see that does raise an important question because I wonder if the depending on what happens, but assuming there is uh, some depopulation, is it going to be sort of like a controlled transition, uh, or is it going to be something like urban decay? Where you literally have uh, landlords abandon their buildings. And, <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, like book you know, of Eli. Yeah, yeah. Book of is it going to be like Book of Eli, or is it going to be like uh, Children of Men? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever a good post-apocalyptic, uh, like a middle ground uh, thing there. Children of Men is probably the closest. I have to assume that there will be some small-scale landlords that will lose their lease. Uh, or with some lose their, lose their mortgages and they give it back to the bank. But most of these are controlled by big businesses anyway. They could take the hit for a little while and do a controlled pair down. I, yeah, I say. that's true. But then, then again, you also think about something. Like, I'm from Stockton, California, uh, which for a long time uh, was the most miserable, miserable city in the United States. <laughs> uh, and also the foreclosure capital during the last uh, recession back in 2008. And that was the case. Banks literally owned the houses and uh, they became blighted. Uh, so it's not all, you know, the, just because they, they own something doesn't necessarily mean they're going to maintain and take care of it. Oh my God. That, uh, that would be... But I guess maybe in New York, you know, you want, uh, you know, this could be an improv theater someday. <laughs> Make sure I, I mow the lawn. In, uh, in Tribeca next to where I work, uh, several buildings have been empty for at least seven years and they just put up a white sheet of paper on the glass. And it just is like they have the number to the rental company or whatever, Vornado or whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, whatever. But it's just been fucking empty. And they just take the tax, um, the tax break from having an empty building, <laughs> which apparently is legal for some insane reason. But yeah. Well, yeah, I got, Facebook is bucking the trend again. I, so I have the article right here. They rented out uh, 730,000 square feet at the Farley Post Office building. Wow. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see, you know. I, I think I think the Facebook thing is interesting because it seems Facebook is betting on young talent wanting to come to the city still. So yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So what else is in the news? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the NRA might be getting broken up. Uh, Alex. Oh, they, they made such a good album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Alex, can, are, can you explain this to us? It, yeah, it, yeah. So it's illegal yeah. to be bad if you're an organization. <laughs> what, is that, what, what does that mean? More or less. So uh, the New York State Attorney General, uh, Letitia James, announced a lawsuit today. Uh, and this, these are sort of similar grounds they used to break up the uh, Trump charity earlier this year. Essentially, the um, New York State Attorney General has the power to uh, bring a lawsuit against uh, organizations that are engaged in illegal uh, or fraudulent business uh, activities, including charities. Uh, and that includes the power to essentially disband an organization. There has, there will be an investigation. Uh, the findings are presented. And if, they, um, if they're uh, found to be accurate, uh, the uh, attorney general would then have the power to essentially outlaw the organization from operating within New York. In State. New York State, though, but not in the whole. Yeah. Like they don't care. Well, the thing, the thing. So the thing is, like, yeah, like so th because they, uh, I, I believe they're incorporated in New York, the NRA. Uh, uh, they it would affect them on a national basis, but they could feasibly reorganize elsewhere. However, you know, it's massively disruptive if you're. 
basically barred from um, any kind of uh, you know organizing or corporate activity in New York. Uh, and especially here, too, I imagine the NRA has a very active membership upstate. Uh, you recall Alexis? We, uh, <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Remember that, yeah, that guy? He didn't chase you out with a uh, golf club. <laughs> uh, there are a lot Stay of... Stay away from my pig. There are a lot of Trump flags upstate, by the way, and they are proud of them. There were. But there are like a bunch of Biden flags, too, which kind of cracked me up. Like, it, I would never imagine any any Hillary Clinton signs upstate, but but people seem comfortable having like some Biden stuff, like stop the hate. A Bernie things too. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah that's true. Sure. That that's you know. But Bernie's only. I saw a woman for Trump sign out in uh, Cape Cod. Woman, uh, one woman or or. <laughs> I, I believe it was women, uh, but I, I didn't. I, I should have knocked on the door and said to, just to make sure they had two. Uh, I'm with the census. <laughs> yeah. I just love that idea. Just like. They should they should do men for Trump. <laughs> Just why not? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they it's have not it. the only gender. Uh, but yeah, so the yeah the, this is the essentially the type of a lawsuit you'd want an attorney general to bring uh, when an organization is either engaging in corrupt business practices uh, or in fraud. And I think the uh, the charges here are that they were using fundraising money, uh, which are supposed to be for uh, for advocacy of the NRA's mission. On things like personal expenses, I don't. Do you remember a couple of years ago there was that um, you, you might you used to see them around like Union Square and stuff? It typically be uh, a person who appears homeless with one of those uh, large ten gallon water jugs uh, asking for change. I think it was called Penny for the Homeless was the name of the organization. Okay. So there used to, there used to be spread out when I first moved to New York. You know they'd have these guys on like every other block. Bless you, around um, Union Square. And I was always curious of like, oh, like, you know, you know, I can't tell if they're collecting yeah. for themselves or uh, if this is a real organization. So a couple of years later, um, after I interned for the New York Attorney General, I learned that it was actually a charity uh, that was run by two people who were not homeless. And uh, basically they were they were basically banking around uh, somewhere between 50 to 75 thousand dollars a year from this. Uh, what they would do is they pay these guys like a couple of bucks or something just to uh, sit around with the jugs. Uh, and then they'd come by in vans and collect the money and then spend them on things like clothes, um, you know, restaurants, Super Nintendo. Uh, there's this specifically said they said something like $40,000 on uh, GameCube. My God. It, it, like some ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Like, I just remember specifically remember the GameStop expenditures being like a focus of the reporting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so these um, but yeah, this organization was was broken up. And it's part of the reason you don't see them around anymore. I'm sure they, you know, typically what happens and especially with offenders like these, is they'll uh, reorganize uh, under a new name or with new ownership and continue the short, sort of the same shenanigans. Uh, but I imagine that will be a little more difficult for the uh, NRA. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that that would be weird to see the NRA lose political power like that. I mean, they've been pretty powerful. But I don't know. I just feel... They were already in a lot of trouble, though. Yeah. With their, like, internal finances, like, did they, they had... It was a... a I, I'm vaguely remembering, but a controversy last year about um, they have way less money in the bank than they should because people have been skimming. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 yeah, the American conservative movement is like very successful, very impressive what they've built, um, but it does have this fundamental like liability that like fifty uh, percent of it is just a grifter scheme. Like fifty, um, that's a- <laughs> maybe probably more. Um, like so much of it is is, is grift, uh, and uh, and so that that put the NRA in, a, NRA in a position where, from my understanding, it was already like 
unclear if the organization was long-term sustainable. Uh, and I think there was some political uh, fallout as well from the uh, from recent school shootings too. I think that you know that has you know yeah. it was a lot of them. It took a lot of them, uh, yeah. but I think the last couple have really sort of started pushing people uh, away from the NRA NRA's uh, core mission. Are are these um, uh, like the family members of the school shooting victims? Are they suing NRA or, or are they taking them to court? Like, and they're just kind of uh, locking them up in court with legal fees? Is that part of it? Uh, that not, wasn't not that my understanding. Oh, okay. No, no. Yeah, I think I think in in general, it's just that it's not it's not cool to have guns. Um, <laughs> I, that's so strange to me. I never imagined that that would ever happen. I always feel like that. Like there's always going to be that sub subgroup in Americans who are just kind of like. I don't know. I think I think yeah. what really killed it was when they took Elmer Fudd's away for the new uh, Looney Tunes. <laughs> At that point, it's like pack it up and go home. I thought I saw a headline about gun sales being up during the yeah. pandemic, but um, yeah, that's know. true. Yeah, I, I think that guns still sell. Like my understanding is that it's like it's a uh, falling number of Americans buying guns, but the number of guns being bought goes forever up. You know, just the, uh, a small minority with a giant armory that is going to rule this place yeah. in, in a decade. We're going to be their slaves. But. I already have mine picked out. Uh, they, we went to we went to high school together, uh, and uh, they hate my posts about gay equality. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, one day they'll be my warlord. So that I am so excited. Uh, uh, yeah, it. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, what's interesting too, though. Um, Maybe maybe gun buying keeps going up, but like joining groups where you're like talking about how cool guns are has become so lame. <laughs> you know, they're just kind of like, why, why would I join? Why would I pay money? It's still an organization, and these conservatives, they're not like they they still view all organizations with uh, um, you know a lot of cynicism, and they're just like, why am I paying dues to the NRA? I'm sure there's a lot of inside turbo that we don't even know about. You know, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I, it's hard for me to paint a group by organizations because you never know how they really feel about them. You know, <laughs> the, the internal life of the IRA yeah. <laughs> or in our yeah. sorry, is, uh, fascinating to elect. Well, it's not, yeah. The secret life of bees. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they love Seinfeld. Can you believe it? <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> to go back to your article, if we're seeing a leftward drift of these college-educated white people in the suburbs. Who is Trump's base then? Is it also college-educated white people or non-college-educated white people? Like, who, who would you say is Trump's base now? Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say there's any one, like, demographic category that is his, like, base. Uh, I mean, the the base is, um, you know, defined... I mean, it, it is a little bit racially in, in, in education, but, you know, in terms of, like, the Republican base is defined you know, first and foremost, I guess, by identification with the conservative movement. But but as far as generally the Republican Party's coalition um, is becoming more uh, non-college educated. Um, and non-college educated white is a category that, uh, you know, unites um, working class uh, and uh, some poor uh, white people with, um, with you know, uh, car dealership owners, with a lot of very rich people who just don't have college um Degrees. There's kind of this. Uh, basically, being more educated makes you uh, more liberal. Being uh, low income tends to make you more liberal. Um, but but they, and then 
so basically the, the most uh, left-wing people in the United States are college-educated people who are poor, and the most conservative people in the United States are non-college-educated people who are rich. Um, oh, there you go. So that's basically you know, rich white people who didn't go to college. Look at that. Yeah, so so it's the, you know, I, I think that it's the petit bourgeois, the, the, the small business owners who... Uh, and I think that there is a real actual connection between uh, Trump and that sort of constituency where, um, you know, sort of like Trump, uh, you know, they have they have tons of money, uh, but this money doesn't buy them the respect of cultural elites, uh, the, you know, the, the, the coastal, the people who really, you know, run mainstream sort of media, academia uh, and, and institutions of cultural prestige. Um, they, they, they sort of resent their kind of style. Um, and so I think Trump actually can... And Trump himself, you know, famously uh, was frustrated with the sense that he was never fully embraced by the Manhattan High Society. And so I think he actually has, like, a genuine kind of, uh, can speak to their resentments in a, a uh. sort of uh, truthful way. Um, the other interesting thing happening with the Republican coalition in the Trump era um, is not only like making huge gains, but but it is the case that he's maintained um, and, and slightly grown uh, in, in, in most polls his support among uh, non-white voters. Um, yes, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, and so in general, the Trump uh, coalition—he's bleeding college-educated white people like crazy, um, but but he's made slight uh, inroads with uh, with Latino voters and with the uh, African Americans, um, and so the, the end result is a, a coalition that is more working class than it was, uh, but it's still the the party is fundamentally controlled by its. Um, you know, plutocratic wing. Uh, I also, and so it, yeah. I also have this theory that, you know, we subsidize, we help, we help out the poor. And I don't think the poor are like about to fuck themselves and vote against their own interests. But there are change agents in like lower middle class uh, voters or whatever. Maybe this is the wrong terminology, but so let's say you make, let's say they say, okay, we'll give you health insurance if you make $24,000. And you make $25,000 a year and you're still very poor, but you're not getting help. You know, I don't know what the Obamacare subsidy is, but like you're not getting help. Why would you be loyal to the Democrats if they're going to leave you out like that just for making like a dollar over the literal poverty line? I feel like those voters are wild cards and... A lot of times people think, oh, just because they're poor, they'll vote Democrat. And the, the truth is they, they see people get the help they need and they need it to and they don't get the help. And they're just like, fuck it, I'll vote Republican. Right. I th- well, I think it, more often it's didn't vote. Uh, enti- like, uh, I think yes. That, yeah, that, yeah. that leads to the high rate of uh, voter apathy, I think, or uh, folks in that category. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is true that, that sometimes... Uh, these these means test uh, lines can create a uh, you know downward looking resentment. Um, I think that that's one dynamic. Um, I do think like you know it's just I think the the weight of the evidence is that people don't vote their economic interests that reliably in the modern United States, sort of across the board. Um, and a lot of voters are like not that well informed. Uh, you know to the I mean, a lot of economic questions uh, can seem technical and can be made to seem technical where, you know, Republicans, uh, their fiscal agenda, their policies are straightforwardly, like upwardly redistributive. Um, 
and, and people understand that they that they don't tax the rich as much as most people would want them to. Uh, at the same time, like you know, it's not if you're not really plugged into this stuff. The idea that uh, oh, Republicans, their business likes them; they're good for business. Business provides jobs. If I want more jobs, I should vote Republican. Is like a pretty widely held sentiment. Um, you know, you see at least as of like two weeks ago when Trump is falling behind Biden by like ten points. The one issue that Republic that, that voters favor Trump over Biden on is the economy. Is this sort of just vague sense that like Republicans they're good at business, so that's good for the economy, so that's good for me. Um, you know, the, so yeah. I, I just think that just generally people are just not really connecting, um, you know, are not ascertaining the distributional consequences of these policies, internalizing that, and then voting on that basis um, in very large numbers. It obviously happens, but it's not it's not that reliable. Mm. All right. Well, that that'll do it for us here at the Alexis Pereira program. Uh, Eric, uh, you write for The Intelligencer uh, on uh, a New York magazine. Uh, anything else you want to plug or, or anything else you're working on? You got a Twitter handle there, Eric? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got uh, – uh, it's um, just just my name. It's E-R-I-C-L-E-B-I-T-Z. Wow. Okay, uh-huh. so check that out. Um, and uh, as we always do, uh, we end with a closing thought from uh, – uh, barrister, local barrister Alex Estrada. Uh, yeah. Alex, uh, well, it's it's just it's so funny because in the you know the course of that you know that first thing we were talking about um, you know road trips and such, it actually uh, reminded me of an experience that I had as a young man. It was sort of similar circumstances as yours. Uh, you know, we were taking a family trip. Uh, you know, our dad had us put the belongings that didn't fit in the suitcases in trash bags. And, uh, you know, as we were driving, uh, you know, I also noticed uh, a horrific smell. And, you know, I opened up one. Uh, it was uh, was my clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I opened up another. It was towels. Hmm. And that smell, it, it, you know, kept coming through. And then I opened up the third one. And wouldn't you know it, there was an Alexis Pereira monologue right in. Unreal. <laughs> Unbelievable. Your own host. Your own boss. Literally your boss. Uh, well, the fans will never hear it because we're editing that out. So. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.